0: Okay guys, Ecclesiastes 12, Ecclesiastes 12, <clears throat> we've said for a number of months now that uh, Ecclesiastes is a, is a book about uh, life uh, and life in a fallen world. Uh, Solomon's goal in this book has been to teach you and I as believers in Jesus Christ and followers of Jesus Christ how to live wisely in that world that world that is still affected by sin uh, and the curse of, of Genesis 3. Uh, last time I mentioned that we were circling the airport, um, so to speak. So this was uh, the last time we were together was uh, sort of the uh, uh, return to your seats, uh, put your tray in an upright position, and fasten your seatbelts. Um now Solomon is, we might say, approaching the runway and the landing gear is down. Uh, so we're getting much, much closer here to the end. Uh, we might even say that these are Solomon's closing, really closing comments uh, to not only his book, because I believe Solomon understood that this would be published, uh, this this book would be published and circulated, uh, but in any given setting, this is also a sermon, so you, you can't Sometimes it's easy as we get into the details over weeks and months to just think of this, these things in small sections. But we have to remember that these kind of things were presented really in one setting, uh, at one time. So it's not bad occasionally to just sit down and read through a book like Ecclesiastes and just keep keep your keep yourself in the chair and go all the way through it. it, it it'll impact you in a different way than when you break it all into small little pieces. So same thing with Romans. Romans is an epistle, so the church this whole all this stuff we've been taking in in Romans, the last 8 chapters that Shane's been uh, teaching so faithfully, uh, it's good sometimes to just sit there and just read through the book of Romans and and kind of get that get that feel. Uh, so it's what we call, these, this section that we're approaching is really what we, we call an epilogue, which is the opposite of a prologue, which you would find at the, at the beginning of a literary work. Uh, it's actually part of the main story, uh, but comes at the end and sort of ties up any loose ends that the author, in, case, in this case Solomon, feels like need to be addressed uh, to bring uh, closure to this, this particular writing. So from verses, verses 9 to 14 forms sort of an epilogue to the entire book. Uh, you might even say it forms an, an epilogue uh, to the life and career of Solomon with, with all of his writings as a whole. And so we've got the, the we've got Song of Solomon, we've got the book of Proverbs, and then we have the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you just thought of them as sort of a three volumes, then this not only is the epilogue and the conclusion, if you will, of this particular book. But you could even say, if you're looking at these three books as a collection, this is a, this is the the summary, the conclusion of not just this particular writing, but really everything that Solomon has has said uh, in in the scriptures. Some believe that uh, that someone other than Solomon came along later uh, and added this section to the book. Uh, that there was an additional person that came along and added their own thoughts and sort of cleaned things up, uh, sort of dealt with the, I guess, a lot of these people that hold to that view, many of them you know, see uh, see Ecclesiastes as a very pessimistic book, and so they look at this as sort of like an editor stepped in and kind of tried to take the edge off of it or to maybe spin it in a more positive light. Uh, Some even suggest that there were two or maybe even three different editors that came along and added their own comments, but there's really... Really, no credible reason to to embrace that idea. So we just we hold to the fact that this is these are Solomon's words from uh, beginning into the very last verse of chapter twelve. It's also important to understand that these verses aren't just a few insignificant details. Uh, rather, this in some ways is the crescendo of the sermon or the crescendo of this work uh, by Solomon. Uh, in fact, the rest of Ecclesiastes without this final section would be incomplete. Uh, It would be like watching a television series for the entire season and then there not being a final episode. (laughs) It it reminded me of um, uh, there was a series that came out that uh, was so good, we felt like as a family it's hard to find things, shows to watch, but there was this series called Sue Thomas FBI, and it was about this uh, federal FBI agent that was deaf, and uh, so it's based on a on a true story, but this series came out. It was a re- really kind of a thriller, detective, FBI type, uh, you know, uh, series. But it was really clean. We we got so into it that we bought the whole. <laughs> we got all the DVDs. I forget how many seasons, but we would watch these things. But it, it, what happened is when you got to this last season, the uh, the people that put the show together were weren't sure if they were going to have the funding to, to, to do another season. And evidently this was a last-minute sort of decision. Like they were thinking they were going to get everything they needed to, together to keep the thing going, but then at the last minute realized that they were not. And so, you know, they spend all of these episodes building this plot, and then, you know, the typical things you'd like to see at the end of a series, like, you know, the two main characters end up, you know, getting together, and this thing over here gets resolved, and, well, you get to this final episode, and it's like a train wreck. The last episode is like, it's as if the the, the people got together, and the producer and the, all of them got together and said, okay, guys, we only have enough money for one more show, and we've got to bring all of these, like, things together, and it was just so disappointing. I mean, we're all when the show was over, we're just sitting there like... Because the two main people didn't get together, it just felt incomplete. Uh, and we just like, surely they're going to come back and do another season, and they never did. So the show just sort of ends after you've got, you know, been with these people in this story. It just ends on this note where you, you feel like your back's not, you know, you're just sort of cockeyed when it's over because there's no really resolution to the show. Everything's just sort of suspended in air. So it's pretty disappointing um, the rest of the shows were great, by the way. But that last one, was, um, it, was it was quite devastating to the Teagues uh, to, to get that far in <laughs> and then be like, what just happened? So that would be like Ecclesiastes. For Solomon to leave off this last little bit, these aren't just insignificant little editorial comments. This is actually, this is the punch um, at the end of the book. And so this is a, rather than sort of view it as these final verses as sort of an appendage, or something that's just tacked on. It really is, it's really a part of the whole thing that Solomon has been laying out uh, so far. Now, the last time we were together, we actually worked our way up through verse 8 of chapter 12. Uh, In verses 1 to 7, Solomon took us through the trials of old age and to the time uh, when dust will return to dust, which, by the way, that was a... um, it's not often in Scripture that you go through sections uh, where you're dealing with that particular topic of aging. Uh, it's one of the few places in the Scriptures that really hone in and describe that process. Um, something to think about, something we we don't think, I think, often enough about in our culture. We actually, I think, for the most part, avoid talking about death and and dying. But if you're interested in going any further... With that, there's, I just brought a few resources to throw out there. Um, this is really short, but this is just Rethinking Retirement by John Piper. It's just a really short little read uh, addressing the issue of our cultural view of retirement. Uh, Packard just uh, recently came out with us, Finishing Our Course with Joy, Guidance from God for Engaging with Our Aging. This is really, really good. <laughs> got a, little, a lot of practical things. And then this one, it might offend you, the title, uh, But Wrinkled But Not Ruined? Um, by Jay Adams is an excellent book, and we actually, I think Tim Brown several years ago actually took his small group through this particular study. But if you're interested in those, I think those are all resources we would recommend, and you can look at those after after class. So, so Solomon talks about that uh, old age and dying, and then he ended that talk with these words in verse eight: "vanity of vanities," says the preacher, "all is vanity." so if the if the motto of the book of Proverbs is "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge," then the motto of Ecclesiastes would be this phrase: "Vanity of vanities, futility of futilities, meaninglessness of meaninglessness, emptiness of emptiness." Uh, now, by mentioning these words again, uh, Solomon is drawing our attention back to the beginning of the book. You might remember back in chapter one how we began this journey with Solomon. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 2, um, it says basically this same thing. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So essentially, Solomon ends where he uh, began. And verse 2 of chapter 1 and verse 8 of chapter 12 serve in a way as as bookends. Um, So So Solomon starts with a thought, and then he sort of unfolds that and then he ends the book or the sermon with the same thought which tells us that Solomon knew where he was going when he started. I mean, he, he, this wasn't, just sort of, he wasn't just sort of meandering with no end in sight. He knew exactly what he would do um, at the end of this, of this work. And his bookend statement is simply that life is frustrating under the sun. Uh, life is momentary and fleeting. Life is perplexing. Uh, and life will never satisfy us fully or or eternally. So Solomon's been taking us at different times back to and reminding us of what happened in the garden. He takes us back to creation. He actually explicitly tells us in in chapter 12, verse 1, to remember our Creator. Uh, he, we've gone time and time again back to not just Genesis 1 and 2 and the way things were before sin, but really to Genesis 3 and the fall and the effects of that and and, and what that's done to our, our experience in life. Uh, but we've learned that man was created by God without sin, without the curse, which means no aging. So this was the God's original design. No aging, no depression, no sickness, no guilt, no shame, no injustice, uh, no broken relationships, uh, all of those things, which explains why now that we find ourselves in sin and under the curse, why life is so frustrating and so fleeting. Solomon says life doesn't satisfy, and that that is is the universal and endless cycle, if you will, of of our existence on on planet Earth. There never seems to be any conclusion or any resolution to the meaninglessness, uh, no matter how hard we search for it. And, And Solomon even shared how he did go looking for it, I mean, he told us that in the early chapters, some of his own explorations personally in that search for meaning. Solomon's search for that, he didn't find it, at least he didn't find it in earthly things, uh, not in things under the sun. But what he did discover is that there is a divine purpose in what appears to be at times a purposelessness in our lives. So on the surface... We might be thinking, you know, if you take in everything Solomon's saying, you say, okay, so we're born, we live, we're frustrated, and we die. (laughs) I mean, if you, you think about all those things that Solomon has reminded us of, but the one thing that is woven throughout all of that that Solomon keeps pounding away at is that God has a purpose. There's a purpose. So one of the main things that God is doing in... Designing life the way that it is, down to the minutiae, down to the details of your life and my life, one of the things that he's doing is driving us back to him. Uh, we look for satisfaction in food, we look for enjoyment in work and in labor, we look for lasting joy and contentment in what we own, in our material things and possessions we look for unending pleasure in our marriages or in some other relationship but god if you will prevents us from obtaining those things that we're looking for for a reason so there's a reason why when you go looking for lasting satisfaction in in some cases in the very things that god has given to you in life to enjoy that you don't find the enjoyment and the satisfaction you're looking for that is by god's design and he does it that way because then that keeps driving you to worship him alone. He doesn't want you to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in anything other than him. And so there's a limitation. There is a joy and there is a, uh, uh, a pleasure and there is contentment in life. And we're actually told to enjoy a certain amount of that and to keep that in its proper place, but it's never meant to supplant God. So everything is driving us back to, to looking to God alone, to worshiping God alone. That is, that is God's design, and that is the thing that Solomon realized, uh, that the human race is driven by a restlessness. There is a restlessness. There is a, a perpetual discontent in the lives of, of every person. Uh, who are we, where are we going, uh, Where? why are we here, all these big questions, right? What is coming after us? And Solomon says, God is the one who satisfies. He is the great satisfier. He is the great source of contentment. So the curse is not meant to drive us from God, which happens, right? Because people experience the effects of the curse of sin, but sometimes that is the very thing that makes them bitter, And instead of trusting in God, they actually rebel against God, turn against Him. So the the curse is not meant to drive us from Him, but to drive us back to the Lord. The pain of the curse, the frustrations of the curse. So so you and I can, can search our whole lives for meaning and fulfillment in people and in places and in things. But after we come up empty and finally realize that only God can satisfy our hearts, Solomon would say, the search is over. Right? The search is over when you get to that point where you realize that nothing satisfies but the Lord himself. Then and only then can you truly enjoy God's gifts. And at that moment, you could might even say it this way, the curse is reversed. Uh, a reversal that is accomplished through Christ. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. He says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him speaking of the Son, and through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So there's a reconciliation, there's a reversal in the relationship. Um, And the curse that we were once under eternal curse and condemnation. That is forever reversed when we come to know Christ as our Savior. Uh, another New Testament passage that refers directly to the message and theme of Ecclesiastes is Romans 8. Uh, we just recently uh, studied this in, in the Romans series. Uh, verse 20, Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility. Now the term futility in that, in that verse is, the, is, the, is, the, is a term from it's from the same word group Uh, As the word vanity in the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes. So um, we call it the Septuagint. This is where they took, in the Greek language, they they translated the Old Testament into Greek, and when they got to Ecclesiastes, and they're trying to find a word to describe the futility and the vanity that, that Solomon is describing, they use the same term that Paul uses in Romans chapter 8. So Paul says, For the creation was subjected to vanity or, or futility or emptiness or meaninglessness, not willingly, he says, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body so paul basically says god is the one who subjected the creation to futility <laughs> so it's not just sin we i mean it's obviously connected to sin but it's not like sin happened and then sin just caused these things Sin happened, and God, because of sin, He's the one that's subjected to creation to that curse. And it says here that the reason why He did that is so that we would hope. <laughs> so, in other words, it, it, we the one of the things that the frustration and the meaninglessness of life that we experience day to day, one of the things that's also meant to drive us to do is to hope in God, not just to be satisfied in Him, but to long for something. Right? Isn't that what Paul's saying? Is saying you're suffering. Well, what does suffering do? Well, it does a lot of things in our lives as believers, but one of the things that it's supposed to do is to cause us to look beyond that circumstance and to long for something else, right? So the vanity that Solomon talks about and that frustration that we often feel, once again, is it's purposeful. Not to drive us to despair, but drive us to hope, uh, to hope in God. Uh, this week I read a, uh, about a story shared by Zach Eswine uh, about he and his family's visit to the area of Joplin, Missouri, back in 2011 after one of the worst tornadoes in, in our country's history. Uh, the tornado basically ripped through Joplin, uh, devastated that town. It was May, May 22nd of that year. And he makes this statement, and his family had gone there basically to help with the cleanup after the, after the tornado came through. And he says this, he says, in that kind of setting, God either gets cursed or worshipped again. And <laughs> that's true. It's like some of the people in that town were worshiping, and some of those people in that town were cursing God, right? To vary those kinds of experiences force us, right, to, to respond in, in one of two ways. And then he goes on to tell about the local high school, and you may have heard about this in the news, but Joplin High School, um the, the, the strong winds that came in with the tornado, basically, it ripped some of the letters off of the high school sign. <laughs> so it rips off J, L, I, and N from the school's sign. And so the, the sign on the front lawn of the school simply reads OP, O-P, high school. Sometime shortly after the storm hit, someone from all of the wreckage that was around the school and around town found two letters and attached them to the sign of the high school. They attached the letters H and E to the sign so that surrounded by all this debris, the sign in front of the school said, Hope High School, (laughs) which testified really to the strength, the maturity of of many of the people in that city, especially some of the students of the high school who had attended their graduation ceremony uh, only a few miles away. They were down at Missouri Southern State University campus Right before the tornado hit, so they would have ordinarily most schools would have it at their school they couldn't they couldn't accommodate the uh, the crowds and so they had moved it to the university campus and then just shortly after the graduation ceremony ended, the storm comes through, killed one hundred and sixty one people, including two students of the high school so so hope high school right so it just it's just one of those stories that says when these things happen, things that were not Things that would have never happened in Genesis 2, right? These things wouldn't have happened in Genesis 1, but they happen now as a consequence of Genesis 3. But they're not meant to drive us to depression and despair, but to hope in God. So Solomon wants us to experience and understand the meaninglessness of life that exists outside the Garden of Eden in this wreckage under the sun but he also wants us to know that human purpose is not lost and that God is not dead. So in Ecclesiastes, we learn that God has purposefully not allowed man to find ultimate satisfaction in anything other than him, and we learn, let there be light, <laughs> speaking of creation, and, and we learn God has also purposefully put within our hearts the desire to know the big eternal why questions of life, but that he has also withheld many of the answers this is what he said back in ecclesiastes 3:11 he says he made speaking of god god made every has made everything appropriate in its time he has also set eternity in their heart yet so that man will not find out the work which god has done from the beginning even to the end so solomon basically says you're going to want to know what will happen <laughs> that 's just that is you 're hardwired to think that way, you want to know what 's going to happen, you want to know when it 's going to happen, you want to know why it 's going to happen, but God is purposefully not going to give you that kind of detail now why doesn 't God do that? why doesn't God Why does God put within you eternity? Why does God put within you this desire to know? where things are going in detail and what your life is going to turn out to be. And if something good or bad happens, why does it happen? Why does God do that, but then keep you from the very, some of the answers to those questions that you deal with every day? And Solomon says, again, that this is meant to drive us to the Lord, right? It's not to drive us to be bitter about what God is doing. It's not designed to drive us to be fearful about what, might happen but to drive us to trust the Lord. That is to say that God purposefully deprives us of many of the answers that we want so that we won't manipulate the circumstances or the people, coerce the people in our lives, twist the information in our lives to selfishly get what we want. Again, the goal is that we find satisfaction in the God of answers, not satisfaction in getting the answers to all of our questions. And there's a big difference between those two. Knowing that God has all the answers and putting our trust in Him and finding satisfaction in our relationship with Him, knowing that He knows and trying to find satisfaction in getting all the answers to the questions. So you could say it this way, that throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon is teaching us to be frustrated with the things that we would never be happy with anyway. (laughs) Right? Because... If we got all that information, I'm not sure we would find satisfaction. You know what I mean? Right? If God said, let me tell you what's going to happen this week in detail. Some people might find satisfaction in that, but some of you would, would say, I would rather have not known that. Right? And so we, would, we, say, we tell ourselves that we would be content and satisfied if God showed us every detail. But the reality is if we got all those details, we wouldn't really be satisfied. Now, not that God doesn't want us to enjoy life or to be optimistic about life or to find contentment. In fact, we've seen his explicit instructions in chapters 3, 5, 8, 9, and 11 on how to do that. But he wants us to feel both. He wants us to feel a contentment and a discontentment. To enjoy the good gifts from God and be thankful for them, but to see them as a foretaste of something better. And to see them as things that God has given to us to ease the frustrations of living in this sin-cursed world, but to walk wisely in the fear of the Lord as we enjoy them. So when Solomon says in verse 8, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he's he's not simply repeating himself. For 12 chapters, Solomon has been showing us how vain life really is. So, So when he makes the same statement at the end of the book, it's it just hits us in a different way. I would say it hits us with more force or impact because it's like he says it at the beginning, but when we read that, I mean, we're only two verses into this book and he makes this statement that all all is vanity. When we read that, what I want to say is, okay, well, prove it. And then I want to hear this argumentation. Well, now here we are 12 chapters later and when he says it this time, we're not resisting this anymore, right? We're actually resigning to the fact that Solomon has made his case, right? This, isn't, this is airtight because he's, he's effectively argued how meaningless life is without God for all of these chapters and how little joy there is under the sun if we try to leave the creator out of his universe. So by the time we get to the end of the book, we have to admit that Solomon has made his case. He's proved his point. So yes, there's joy in this life under the blessing of a faithful God. And we've been encouraged by Solomon to enjoy God's good gifts of food and work, um, of of, of drink, of marriage. He's told us in chapter 3 that there is a time to heal. There is a time to build up. There is a time to laugh. There's a time to dance. There's a time to embrace, to love, and to make for peace. But as Derek Kidner has stated, nothing in our search has led us home. Nothing that we are offered under the sun is ours to keep. So Solomon says, don't try to manipulate God. He's in charge. Don't be hardened by the futility and the frustration. God has a purpose, and it's and its purpose, and his purpose is to drive you to him. Now, before Solomon gives us this final conclusion in verses 13 and 14, he takes a moment to talk about himself and his method, himself and his method. Now in verse 9, Solomon uses, in fact, let me just read these verses for us. Verse 9, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. So in verse 9, Solomon uses the third person. Um, He's obviously, I I think, that he's referring to himself, uh, still calling himself simply the preacher, which he did early on in chapter 1, assuring his readers that despite his failures and his own disillusionments, that he still taught the people knowledge. And when Solomon refers to himself as a wise man, as you think about this, if he is writing this, (laughs) then he says, in addition to being a wise man, you know, it's like, hey, wait a minute. Okay, either we're going to accept the fact that this is not Solomon writing and somebody is referring to him as a wise man, or if we give in to the idea, okay, this is Solomon, this is his words, and he's speaking about himself in the third person, then Didn't that seem a little braggadocious to be saying you're a wise man, right? But that's not really what he's doing. In fact, he's he's really just placing himself in one of the teaching institutions of his day. Because in the Old Testament times in Israel, teachers more or less fell into one of four categories. You had parents, you had priests, you had prophets, and you had wise men. And all of those different categories, Groups of people played a role in the teaching and instructing of God's people. And Solomon's just saying, I fit into the fourth category. So parents would, according to Deuteronomy 6, teach and train their children. They had a God-given responsibility to teach their kids about the ways of the Lord. Priests would, according to Deuteronomy chapter 33, teach the law of God and God's moral requirements to the people, uh, not just simply, we, we typically, when we hear priests, we typically think of just the sacrificial service that the priests had in that particular role but they also also had a teaching role in the life of Israel. Then you had the prophets who weren't necessarily teachers of the law in a direct sense, but they were the ones that would call Israel back to God when Israel had gone after other gods or immoral things or had forsaken their their covenant obligations. So if you will, they were the ones that the the priests would, the parents would teach and the priests would teach, and the people were supposed to listen and observe, but at times when Israel would not have listened and observe, the prophets were there to call them back to the instruction that they were given and to warn of the consequences of not doing that. So you had the prophets, and then you had the wise men, which had a different role. Their job was to explain the why of things, to teach basic, sensible, and wise principles for daily living. In other words, they're the ones that took the law of God and pressed it into the details of life, right? So they took what was in the, the, in the books of Moses, primarily the Pentateuch, and then they would get down to the, where we say the rubber meets the road, right? So how does the law affect the way that you would live in this situation? And what they would do is they would try to reduce these we might say complex issues down to simple statements that anyone could understand namely the proverbs right so that we could live by the proverbs the book of proverbs is just sort of a a detailed explanation of how the law meets life right it's it's how you you take the the mosaic law and you get it down into issues of friendships and money and work and and how you treat people and wisdom and humility. That's all they're doing is they're just saying, this is how this works itself out into daily life. And that's exactly who Solomon was. That was his function, right? He he wasn't a prophet in the usual sense or, or a priest, but a wise man. And in that role, he wrote Song of Solomon, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. So that is who he was. Now, regarding his methods, he writes in the second half of verse 9 that he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. So, that is to say this wasn't something that was just thrown together. Um, it's difficult enough to read it. It's even more difficult to interpret it, but imagine writing it, <laughs> okay? I mean, we've spent a lot of time just reading it and trying to figure out its message and its details, but think about the, the effort that went into actually putting this together. Solomon clearly had the great wisdom for which he was noted. We looked at that back in, in the book of Kings, but he was still diligently studying and learning, giving heed and attention to all of the relevant data. Uh, so you've got on one hand, you've got his this rigorous research on Solomon's part. He says here that he pondered many proverbs. The word pondered means to, to weigh something. So, Basically, we're talking about a very careful evaluation, a careful preparation, weighing these things out to decide what should be included and what shouldn't be, what's worthy to be included in this kind of book and what's not. It says he searched out many proverbs, which means that he was both thorough and diligent. And then it says he arranged them, which points to his intentional ordering of his material and the skill in, that he had in presenting it. So he contemplated all that was presumed to be wisdom. Okay, remember you got to think of this is Solomon. Okay, influence, power, mobility, money, relationships, worldwide connections. Okay, so he's he's contemplating all of that stuff out there that's considered to be wisdom. Okay, I mean we're talking about cross culturally he's doing that. Things that claim to be true wisdom but failed to deliver. When that happened, he would expose those things and he would chuck that out. Okay, so he would weigh these things out. If it's not true, if it's not worthy, it's out. And then the things that he searched for and searched out and found to be true and reliable, he arranged into Proverbs and short statements and wisdom sayings. So he thought through every, every popular view of life and exposed where those views were lacking. So we're talking about slow, slowly, slowly thinking, contemplating, daily sifting through these things—a very deliberate uh, investigation of these things, deliberate in his composition and in the arrangement of the proverbs and lessons that he wrote. So these aren't just one-liners, okay? These aren't just like things you put on, slap on on a bumper sticker. These are these are things that were carefully chosen and put in a particular order so that they would best illustrate what Solomon had to say. Then we see his method of writing. It was also not his method, Not only his method of research was rigorous, but his rigorous method of writing. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. So Solomon's diligence included a careful study to select just the right words with which to convey his wisdom and instruction to others. And this is what good writing does, right? It does both. It, it, it's concerned about a delightful, we might say stylistic use of words coupled with an unbending commitment to the truth. So it's, it's certainly possible to move people with an artistic use of words, but to be inaccurate, right? We have a lot of false teachers that do that, right? They're, they're concerned about the delightful and the stylistic part, but they're not all that concerned about the accuracy, right? Right? So Solomon was concerned about both. That's what he's telling us here. He was concerned about the artistry of it and the theological correctness of it, the theological precision of it. So just think about what we looked at in the previous section, right? Just these previous seven verses we looked at last time and just the way in which Solomon describes the process of aging. I mean, you couldn't come up with, I don't think, a much more artistic way to talk about the process of aging than to talk about a dilapidated mansion, basically, and all of the details that went into that. I mean, some people, and this is just this is secular opinion, but some people read the, that section in Ecclesiastes 12, 1 to 7 and say it's one of the most highest forms from a, from a literary standpoint. It's hard to beat, really. So the artistry is there, but the thing is, it's also the truth. I mean, there wasn't a thing that we st- we looked at in those seven verses about old age and dying that did not, we're like, yep, yep. I mean, I saw a lot of people in the class actually nodding, saying, I- I'm-, I'm halfway there, right? I mean, my knee's going out and my hair turning white and, I mean, these things are already happening. So there's just, it, the accuracy, the precision can't be argued. So it was the truth, but it was also artistic. Solomon labored, ...over both of these elements, acceptable words, arresting words, but also accurate words. That is to say that while he sought to employ pleasing or even gracious words, he never diluted his message or flattered his audience. Uh, then it says, uh, and again, it says to, he sought to write words of, of truth correctly. It's the only time, the only instance in, uh, in Ecclesiastes where Solomon even mentions the word truth... Uh, but I think it's significant uh, that he does this, particularly at the end or near the end in, of the book, in that it assures all of his readers that his words were absolutely true words. There's no deception. There's no perversion. There's no, no distortion. I mean, if this is a book, and, and, and Mike Lee made this comment after class few, several weeks ago. He just said, Joel, it's just sort of struck me that this, this book is, this is a biblical worldview. I mean, if you had nothing but Ecclesiastes, it would frame up for you a biblical worldview. Well, folks, if we're going to form a, a worldview and live by it, you'd like to know that the words were accurate, right? That there's absolutely no, no twisting of anything. And so he's just simply assuring us of that. There was balance. His words were both delightful and dependable. Michael Eaton says this, "...to be upright but unpleasant is to be a fool." To be pleasant but not upright is to be a charlatan. And Solomon was neither, right? He had clarity, artistry, and and integrity. Then in verse 11, Solomon lays out the purpose of his writing. He says, the words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. So he uses two word pictures to illustrate the purpose of Ecclesiastes. Uh, he uses really two shepherd 's tools as metaphors to illustrate the purpose of his wise words, so he first says, "Ecclesiastes is a goad it 's a goad okay a short not so short it 's about six six foot long wooden stick right with a sharp tip on it you would you might use to jab a reluctant a reluctant ox or, or a cow right to get them moving." Um, Or to constrain them, to to keep them from veering off the path, right? So they're they're, they're going along and they start to go like this and you might use it to get them back on course. Uh, To spurn a stubborn animal, to keep it moving or maybe to move faster because maybe it's going the right direction and maybe it's going but it's just not going quick enough, right? So you can use this goad for all these reasons. You can get an animal moving, you can make an animal go a little quicker, or you can use it to correct, right, to get an animal back on track, which reminds me of sort of what Paul says in Timothy about God's Word. In general, he says, 2 Timothy 3.16, All scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Right, so he's basically saying this is what God's Word does. It, It teaches you what is right. It teaches you what is wrong. It tells you when you're getting off course and then it helps you to get back on track and stay on track. That's what the scriptures do and that's basically what Solomon is saying about his own book, Ecclesiastes. That's what this book is meant to do. It's meant to goad you. It's meant to to teach you the way to live but when you veer off course, it, it corrects you and it keeps you in line and it keeps you moving and honestly, it helps you to go places where you would not ordinarily go right so it 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 moves us along and it it constrains us god doesn't use the book of ecclesiastes to hurt us any more than an than a uh, a shepherd might use this instrument to move an animal or to get an animal moving but to just inflict enough pain to get full cooperation right so god's not using ecclesiastes to kill us right He's doing it to get our attention and to get our full cooperation. So the scriptures are meant, someone said it this way the scriptures are meant to not only comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comforted or the complacent, right? So sometimes we turn to the word of God, and there's times when we are afflicted and we need comfort, right? We need a bomb. <laughs> to soothe, but then there are times when we are comfortable, comforted, but in a sense in which we're now becoming more complacent and more stubborn. And in that case, God actually afflicts us with his word, right? So the words of Ecclesiastes are like goads to the conscience, meant to make us uncomfortable enough to turn away from any sin or any form of idolatry to stimulate the soul to steer us back onto the right path of living. It has been God's cattle prod. That's what Ecclesiastes has been. Pushing us to find our satisfaction in the goodness of God, not in material things. Steering us away from foolish religion and rash decisions and outbursts of anger and resentment and mocking laughter. Spurring us onto humility, patience, prudence, contentment, and joy. Challenging us to remember our Creator, poking us with the reality that we are all dying and will soon face the Lord. That is what it's done. Prodded us, jolted our views of God's sovereignty, poked us regarding the misuse of wisdom and how we try to manipulate God, pointing out our wrong thinking about work and money, one jab after another. Right? So that's one purpose. The second word picture here, this metaphor that he uses, is. The, the, the words of Ecclesiastes are like, he says, firmly planted pegs, firmly planted pegs, nails. The ESV says like nails firmly fixed. So these, these are, are, are like stakes, right? Like the stakes that shepherds would use to fasten their tents. We might say tent pegs for herd, for the herdsman's tents. And when the stakes are firmly driven into the ground, the tent doesn't blow away. So, so the frustrations of the curse, the evil, the oppression, the, the injustice, the calamity of this, of this life and this world, when you grasp the instruction of this book, Solomon says, these things will not blow you away. These things will come, but you will be able, as a believer, to stand because you have a biblical worldview. It could also refer to pegs that were driven into beams, or perhaps the, the tents the tent sometimes would have a center post, and so they would take the center post and they would drive nails or pegs into that, and they would hang important things on there. They would hang tools, they would hang cooking utensils, even articles of clothing. and so you it could even mean that in the sense that these are things that we can if you will hang your life on these things right? They help you in a sense to organize life. So when something happens to you, especially calamity, right? It helps you to think clearly about and sort out those things. So it kind of gives you some hooks to say, okay, I'm going to hang this there and I'm going to put this over here. And it helps you to kind of interpret life, if you will, from a biblical standpoint. So Solomon's words aren't meant to... Are, are meant not only to prod us, but also to serve as nails or pegs that are fastened in our minds yeah. to give us stability and perspective on life. Joel, yes. I, I might add that if you don't have that, um, there's no shortcuts. And if you don't have that in advance of calamity, uh, you have it. There's no hurry and give me a little bit of Jesus. I'm in a jam right now. Yeah. I mean, that's what, and that's why I use that, you know, when... The, when um, Eswine says that, people either curse or worship. (laughs) In other words, in that moment, everything that's in that heart and in that mind that's been put in there in advance, it all comes, I mean, it's it's a grid. And that circumstance goes right through it, and you come out either one way or the other. I mean, either you believe in the sovereignty of God or you don't. (laughs) Yeah, either you believe God is in control or you don't. Either you believe God is in control or you try to control things and people. Uh, either you run to the Lord as your refuge, or either you run to a myriad of other things as your refuge and strength in time of trouble. So yeah, when the pressure's on, that's 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 what you find. That's when you find out what's been we've been putting in, right? So those those things are inescapable. So it's just to me, it's just an encouragement for us to read the scriptures, study the scriptures, memorize the scriptures, hang your life on the scriptures. Um. Because they serve that purpose, and it's so so critical. So it's not to me. It's not. It is certainly a statement about Solomon's words. He's speaking about his own writing. But to me, it's really. We can look back now and say this is really the purpose of all of Scripture, isn't it? I mean, it's to it's to goad us, and it's to provide a a place for us to hang these different experiences and and sort of categorically think about life from a biblical standpoint. Standpoint. Uh, then at the end of verse 11, Solomon tells us the source of his material, which is important, right? Because w- the question is, where did Solomon get all these ideas? Are these just things that he came up with on his own? Are they just a summary of ideas that he borrowed from others? What does he say? that all of these wise sayings that get nailed into our hearts and that prod us into action are given by one shepherd. Most likely a reference to God himself. I think that's why in the English translations, your translations may have the capital letter S, even though in the Hebrew there's no designation for a capital letter. Um, but a lot of the, in the English, English versions, they go ahead and do that because the, the, the translators were convinced that that's what he's talking about. Uh, this is this is Yahweh. This is the shepherd of Israel. Uh, so Reference to that in Psalm 80, verse 1. Of course, we have Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. So, so Solomon is just saying, don't get the idea that I just went out and just investigated all these other worldviews and cultures and kind of pieced together some things. <laughs> He's saying, I went out and I examined all that, and he had his own experience, right? his own experience of chasing after idols. So he had that to work through. had all that content. He goes out and he's got this this ability to not just be exposed to all these other worldviews in life, but to have God's wisdom to sort through those things. But he's saying, don't get the idea that I just patched a bunch of things together, that I went... Oh, you know that statement over in Buddhism? That's a great statement. I think I'll put that in here. Right? You know what I'm saying? Cuz you get that idea that when he talks about collecting things and searching things out that he might have just gone and gotten the best from all these different religions and then just put them together. So he wants you to he wants you to know that this book is from God. This isn't these aren't just his words, but I think Solomon understood that his writing would be considered a part of the canon. I think that he understood this is, this is God's Word. Just like Paul, I think Paul understood that when he was writing these things that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that that was like later on. I think that the church understood the authoritative nature of what Paul said as opposed to just what any Christian would say. Does that make sense? So he wants you to know this is not just Solomon speaking here. right? These, are, these words are from God God is the real source of the words from this, of this book. God gave the idea, these ideas to Solomon. God is the one who aided Solomon in the composition of Ecclesiastes. He is the one who shepherds the truth. He is the one who gives truth to his people. And then in verse 12 he says this, But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Which is an amazing statement to think about, considering it was written 3,000 years ago. Okay, I mean, yeah. Otherwise, what would Solomon think about in our day with a Barnes and Noble and three Christian bookstores within fifteen minutes of the school? That's <laughs> like, I mean, in his day, he's saying it's endless, it's endless. And now you think about all of the books and the research and the information, right? All the books, all the journals, all the magazines, all the papers. Not to mention all the information online, the websites, the blogs, the news feeds, the social media, etc. You talk about wearying to the body. You can wear yourself out pursuing these things. So it's, it's, it's as if there's a, there's a moment of vulnerability here with Solomon. It's as if he's saying that the writing of this book has cost him endless pain. Now remember, he's at the end of his life. He's not only done all this research, but he's, he's walked through this. He's experienced this. He's made a lot of foolish and, and ungodly decisions in his life and he's saying basically there's been a lot of sleepless nights to put this together <laughs> this is this is this it wraps everything that i've experienced and and searched out in my life this is the conclusion and it's as if for a moment he lets his guard down because the reality is it was as hard even harder for solomon to write this book than it is for us to read it it's a hard book to read it's a hard book to to take in and, and to deal with, but imagine being the one that wrote it. And I think he's just saying, this this thing wore me out, wore me out. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with studying or reading or searching or learning, but the warning here is that we never allow man's books to rob us of God's wisdom. So he's just saying, listen, you can't do more research than I did. But at the end of the day, you know what? You've got to come back to this. And this is all roads are gonna, should end back here, right, with the Lord. <laughs> so we should never allow those things to take us beyond what Ecclesiastes so clearly teaches that God is the reason for our existence and the purpose of our lives. And until we discover that, studying in books will never be of any eternal value to us. So the point is you can read all the books and do all the research you want but you always come back to the same place. You can think it through and you can write it all down but in the end all those roads lead you to this. Verse 13, the conclusion, when all has been heard, this is the conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, which is what we're going to look at next time. Okay, So you can miss out on reading, you can miss out on studying and researching a lot of things, but there's one book that you must not ignore. And it's not just the book of Ecclesiastes, it's the scriptures. You can read a lot of stuff, but you always come back to that. Nothing else speaks more clearly, more authoritatively, more comprehensively about the main issues, right? Creation, man, God, sin, history, redemption. Those most important subjects, right? This is where we learn about that. And this trumps all other all books, all other research that's available to us. So nothing speaks more clearly and authoritatively and purely than that, which is why, as David Kemp says, we don't teach the Reader's Digest on Sunday morning, Right? This isn't humor in uniform, or laughter's the best medicine. Out of breeders' digest, it's why every week this is why we come together to study this, because we have that level of confidence that it's God's word. So we'll stop there, and then we'll come back, and next Sunday we'll, we will finish thirteen and fourteen, and we'll we'll put a bow on it.